preserving a feature was more important. I get it. Preserving newsreels, more important. I get it. Preserving Laurel and Hardy, totally understand. Cartoons are always the last. It's the least. Out of the silver shadows and into the Klieg lights of Movieland comes Nitrateville Radio. This is Michael Gebert in Chicago with Nitrateville Radio, the podcast that talks to people doing cool stuff in the world of classic era films. Brought to you by Nitrateville.com, the discussion site about movies from the classic age from all around the world. This episode's theme is pencil and paper, and how drawings become movies. First, I talk with legendary animation scholar Jerry Beck. He helped put together a new set saluting a star whose career launched one of the most beloved cartoon studios. The studio was Warner Brothers, and the star was Mr. Porky Pig. We'll talk about that and the whole world of classic animation and home video. I'll also talk with him about a character who started on paper, but flew off the page onto the big screen in the newly restored serial, The Adventures of Captain Marvel. Then, you've probably never heard of Harold and Lillian Michelson, but you've seen his storyboard drawings once they were turned into iconic images of cinema by much more famous movie directors. I'll talk to Daniel Rame, director of Harold and Lillian, a Hollywood love story. And remember, don't miss an episode of Nitrateville Radio. Jot down the URL on a piece of paper. No, wait, I have a better idea. Subscribe at iTunes, SoundCloud, or Stitcher. Thanks. I ought to be in the pictures. I'm wonderful to see. I ought to be in the big pictures. Oh, what a hit. I would be. Big, Disney's cartoons were the most artistic, but Warner Brothers were the funniest. That was Leon Schlesinger's goal, and few would argue that he and the directors of Termite Terrace, Chuck Jones, Tex Avery, Frank Tashlin, Bob Clampett, Frizz Freeling, and others, didn't achieve it. But getting from Disney imitator to their own hip, smart-alecky vision took a while. And a new animation collection from Warner Archive shows how it happened. Porky Pig 101 Classic Warner Brothers Animated Shorts gathers 101 cartoons, starting with the eponymous Pig's 1935 debut, many of them black and white, and thus hard to see for many years. Jerry Beck is the author of many books on animation, owner of probably the best animation website, cartoonresearch.com, at times a studio executive, and one of the people who made this and many other studio animation releases happen. We spoke recently about all of that, beginning with where Warner Brothers animation was in 1935, when Porky Pig made his debut in a herd of new characters. All Hollywood studios back in the 1930s uh, seemingly were required to have uh, an affiliation with animation, with an animation studio that was part of their, their studio, uh, or a contract with an independent producer. This came about uh, because of Mickey Mouse and Walt Disney, and the sensation that, that Steamboat Willie and early sound cartoons caused, uh, you know, a cartoon was an expected part of uh, the movie-going program. So uh, it's like when I go to the movies today, if I don't see the trailers, I feel cheated. And uh, people felt that way if a cartoon was not on the program. So uh, the studios kept everybody supplied with, uh, with animation. Warner Brothers, uh, when sound came in, I mean, they were the people who helped popularize sound films with the jazz singer and Vitaphone and all that. So they uh, quickly made an arrangement with their friend Leon Schlesinger, who was the head of Pacific Title and was doing title cards. He was worried that, that uh, you know, that with sound, there might not be a need for title cards anymore. 
They certainly wouldn't need the intertitles. Remember those early Hal Roach films where the, the girls come out in the beginning and read the credits? Yeah, you there know, are a instead few of... spoken titles that seem right. very odd now. Mm-hmm. That's what people thought was going to happen. They didn't need this this anymore. So Leon was looking for uh, not an escape route, but uh, but another plan, a kind of a backup plan. And uh, because he had been working with graphics for the titles and artists, he was already familiar with uh, with that universe. And uh, when Harmon and Ising, I'm giving you, I'm realizing now, I'm giving you a gigantic backstory for, for your <laughs> simple question. No, that's but all right. Long story short, he. He, he, Harmon and Ising, who were two Disney uh, uh, animators who uh, kind of split with Disney when Disney went his own way with Mickey Mouse. Uh, they remained behind doing the Oswald cartoons, but wanted wanted to do what Walt was doing. If Walt could do it, we know what Walt does. We can do it, too. And so they, they came up with a pilot film, Bosco the Talk, Inc. Kid, and they pitched that to many producers, including Leon, and Leon took it to Warner's, and they made him a made a deal for their independent studio, Harmon and Ising, to, to make cartoons. And that lasted for about three years. Uh, and uh, Harmon and Ising wanted some more money to uh, continue competing with Disney as Disney was getting more artistic and uh, doing color films and silly symphonies and just beautiful stuff. Leon just wanted to remain black and white, just do these cartoons. He didn't have any feeling to compete with Disney other than to keep up a certain level. Uh, but his budgets wouldn't allow. So they moved on long story short there. They moved on to MGM and continued making their happy harmony cartoons there. When they left, they took their character Bosco with them. So Leon was left with nobody and, and he had a, a small staff who were trying to, uh, come up with some new character that would replace the character of Bosco. That was the character they came up with was buddy, which was really a carbon copy of Bosco in many ways, a uh, little boy, little girlfriend, a dog who looked like Pluto, the whole thing, the whole bit. Those cartoons did not set the world on fire. Yeah, they're very generic imitation Disney work at that point. I mean, even the name Buddy is generic. They, they really were. And, and so uh, Leon did take their second series. Uh, he had Looney Tunes, which, which was kind of the equivalent of Mickey Mouse. Uh, if you're looking at it from a Disney point of view, Disney had Mickey Mouse cartoons and Silly Symphony. So Leon had Looney Tunes, which were his star character cartoon. And he had Merry Melodies, which was sort of his Silly Symphonies, where they would just do miscellaneous things. The one plus that Leon had was that he had... Warner Brothers, as his distributor, uh, he had access to the Warner's uh, music library and was basically, uh, I don't want to say ordered, but it was part of his deal that he put a chorus or two of a Warner Brothers song, something they want, they, something the company owned that they wanted to plug, whether it was songs from 42nd Street or or other musicals, uh, and so songs that were written by their songwriters that really didn't even fit anywhere else, ended up sometimes in the Merry Melodies cartoons. And uh, one of those songs was a song called I Haven't Got a Hat, which which uh, was in a Merry... They made a Merry Melody cartoon called I Haven't Got a Hat. The song was in a couple of the Vitaphone comedy shorts. And that's really... Its only existence was that. But its claim to fame was the cartoon that ha that's called I Haven't Got a Hat is the car first cartoon that features the character we now know today as Porky Pig. And uh, that cartoon came out. It was a two-color, technicolor parody of kind of the Our Gang comedies with a lot of, a, you know, classroom with a teacher. And, and the students would all come up and do their little talents. And there'd be Ham and X, two little cats, and, you know, uh, and, and Porky and Beans. Beans, Beans being a little, a little cat character who, uh, you know, was uh, sort of teamed with Porky in a way. And uh, Porky was a character with a speech impediment, a stutter, and they hired a real stutterer to uh, to uh, to do that voice. And uh, got, apparently that cartoon got big, big laughs, and they wanted to keep using that pig character. Although immediately, uh, Leon Schlesinger uh, thought that uh, Beans had more star potential than Buddy or Porky, so they started making Looney Tunes cartoons starring Beans, the cat. And so there's several of those. 
Yeah, and he really seems. I mean, you can see why he's he's like in a kind of a Mickey Mouse mode, uh, playful and cute and all that. Yeah, no, Beans has no real personality. He's just a cartoon character, leading man type from that period, uh, kind of molded off of Mickey Mouse is really. And all the studios did that. All the studios lead characters were kind of like that. You know, there was Flip the Frog, and there was there was you know Bimbo at, at Fleischer's and. Oswald Rabbit at Lance and and you know it was just that was the that was a generic cartoon character of the of the early 30s and that's what made Porky stand out. Uh, Porky was not the generic character of the 1930s. You know, uh, first of all, he had come by come, come around at a time when the character design was getting a little more realistic. They were moving away from the circles, you know, and the pie cut eyes <laughs> of Mickey Mouse to an, a, a a kind of a a more I don't want to say realistic, but more realistic than that look. And uh, so that was a plus in his favor. And the other thing was his unique speech pattern, which, of course, was a great thing for cartoon characters to have in the sound era. It's kind of what made Mickey Mouse. It's kind of what made Donald Duck. And, of course, it's what made uh, uh, Porky Pig. One could even say that holds true for Betty Boop and Popeye as well. You know, is their their voice, their unique, uh, you know, vocal you know, uh, character, uh, definitely, uh, helped, you know, make them rise above, uh, the standard norm, which beans was the other factor with Porky in Porky's favor was that he's just being established and coming onto the scene in these cartoons around 1935, 36. And this is when Leon, I think ac- uh, accidentally, I don't mean accidentally, but I mean that he, I don't think he, knew what a what he was doing when he hired Dex Avery to be a director at a studio. He just needed another director, a competent person who could make these cartoons. But I don't think he realized was that he was hiring a comedy genius. And uh, Avery came in and looked at Beans, looked at Porky, looked at Beans and said, I'm taking Porky. We're going to make Porky into Porky's got more potential for funny. And that's what Avery cared about. And uh, and suddenly the the Porky Pig cartoons are now not only featuring this unique character, but they're become they're they're really funny. They're actually got funny ideas in them, funny drawings, and uh, and the character in the hands of not only Avery but uh, fellow new directors, including Frank Tashlin, in particular. Uh, suddenly, this is a character who is. Uh, you know, they can use to build funny, funny situations around. And even when they kind of run out of steam in some ways, uh, when I say run out of steam, I mean, it's like, okay, we did everything we can think of with Porky. They're still, these guys are so creative that they're still able to create funny cartoons around Porky, uh, introducing crazier characters, putting them into wilder situations. Uh, you know, Porky and Wacky Land coming up with characters like the Dodo and, and, and Daffy Duck. Uh, just the, just the the strangeness of some of the ideas in some of these films, uh, they're they're you know they they really hold their own. Porky is now the signature character by the mid excuse me the late 30s. He's now the signature of the uh, of the studio, and of course uh, the the uh, famous "That's All Folks" you know end title, which started from day one 1930 with Bosco. But uh, and it was carried on. It was used by other characters. Whoever was in the star of the cartoon would come out and say, "That's all, folks." At the end, that was a, that was part of uh, the Warner Brothers and uh, Leon Schlesinger studio. Porky doing it, bursting out of a drum, you know, to do it. That became when that now Porky is a star, and that is now it's cemented in people's minds. Puts Looney Tunes completely on the map as a you know viable, funny major competitor to the cartoon market in the late 30s. The late 30s is an interesting period because um, uh, this is where Disney is now focused on making features. Snow White has come out at the end of 37. It's a sensation, biggest picture of all time in 1938. And uh, so animation, the animation world in this late 30s period, uh, Popeye, Porky, you know, these are they're able to emerge because Disney's taken his eye off the short subjects market. He's concentrating on doing Pinocchio and Fantasia, and um, uh, that leaves 
the shorts field to guys like Fleischer and, uh, and, and Leon Schlesinger who are making funny cartoons. The other competitors, Lance, MGM, whoever else you can think of that I'm not thinking of right now, everybody else, uh, they're, they're just still copying Disney. They're trying to make beautiful, silly symphony cartoons. They're trying to make, you know, precious little bunny, funny animal things. Uh, the Fleischers and uh, and Warners are are hitting the ground with humor, funny, and it's working for them. This is their place, and they know it. They know it at this point. Well, you know, and I think you see that starting to develop even in those earliest cartoons. I mean, to me, one of the things that distinguishes Warner Brothers is a kind of savvy about media they're often sending up something even then just the second porky cartoon gold diggers of 49 you know it starts with these titles as if it's going to be a western epic and stuff like that um and that's to me that's kind of the first inkling of the the humor that you get from warner brothers which is very sassy street smart um, and very much of the World War II period to me. Well, that was the other thing about Warner Brothers cartoons is that is that uh, that was part of the Tex Avery, Frank Tashlin. It was kind of what they call meta. They, they were bringing in the experience that they're in the audience watching the cartoon with you. The characters know they're in a cartoon. They talk back to the audience. They explain things. They, uh, they're, they're, they're almost like an early version of Mad Magazine. Uh, where where they're they're or, or Saturday Night Live uh, today, where they'll they're making they're spoofing the movie program. Uh, Avery in particular would do travelogue parodies, his 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 uh, nursery parodies like his Little Red Riding Hood spoofs that he would always do. You know, really goes back to uh, making fun of what Disney was doing. Disney was doing Three Little Pigs and the Tortoise and the Hare and things like that. So. Uh, they were doing like their version, which was a crazy, wacky version. And you're right. They would also do everything. They would do Westerns. They would do uh, with Porky. They did the, the Lone Stranger in Porky, which was a parody of not only the Lone Ranger movie serial, which it was, but it was also a parody, of course, of the Lone Ranger radio show. So they, and they did that often. They had, that's why there's so many gags in these cartoons that are riffs on radio, uh, you know, expressions. Uh, popular radio expressions of the day, popular uh, lines from uh, commercials from, uh, that are heard on the radio that everybody in the audience would have been familiar with. Being topical, being contemporary, whereas Disney was being classic, you know, for all time. Ferdinand the Bull, you know, wink and yeah. blink and a nod. You know, those are those are classic things, which, you know, they're not part of the the, the year they were made. That's some reason why that they're they last so long. With Warners, they were being, you know, they were being, they were being, they were like a newspaper comic strip. You'd read it today, you'd throw it away. You know, you'd read it right now, get a laugh and throw it away. And I think that was the thinking back then. It was, you came in, this was really, really a parody, a spoof of something we all know. And it, it, there was no thought of future television showings or collected on DVDs. Yeah. They didn't, or even reissues. And, you know, they didn't really reissue the Porky Pig cartoons uh, because they were in black and white. Uh, these early ones. So uh, by the time they would think to reissue them, color had come in uh, for cartoons by the 40s. And so uh, it just was old hat to reissue a black and white cartoon. Um, so it was very disposable entertainment. And uh, but but yet we now can see today with our eyes today having been raised with these and seeing them multiple times that they still work they're still very very funny and they are dare i say art you know they can hold up over multiple screenings and showings there's a beauty to them to the animation to the the drawing style um there's just so much there not to mention the pop culture it's almost a time capsule you know of of things that are of that era uh, that are just kind of, you know, frozen in amber in these cartoons. Yeah, I mean, would uh, would, they're, they're, would Ben yeah. Blue even exist at all if we hadn't seen him caricatured <laughs> in Warner Brothers cartoons? Exactly. It's like there were some of these cartoons when I saw it when I was a teenager back in the 
seventies, you know, uh, I, I, I had no idea who Eddie Cantor was, you yeah, know, and yeah. I had no idea what, ha- what, you know, why he was waiting for his, you know, uh, his babies and he wanted a boy. I had no idea what any of that was about, you know, but, but what's great is it's a great way for us to learn about, uh, about what it is to get the jokes. It, they only make it, they only make it funnier. You know, it's great for guys, people like us who love, uh, old movies but we also I, I i think you're with me you probably love old radio and sure. music from the era you know and all of that and the movies of course uh the more you know of pop culture not to mention what else was going on in the world you know the depression and all that but uh but the more you know about the the past the songs uh, the fashions the you know the the funnier these cartoons are uh, because of the references that Carl Stalling will put in with the music, you know, with little throwaway lines or things in the background. There's, uh, you know, the, the jello jingle is used a lot. I mean, there's these little things that are that people would have been familiar with if you lived in the 1930s uh, that enhance these cartoons. Yeah. Well, let's talk about, I mean, you mentioned that they're black and white, and that's the big reason why these are so many of the cartoons on this set are coming to DVD for the first time is because mm-hmm. they're black and white. Um, yeah. So this is kind of a, a lost treasure trove of films to a certain extent. How, tell me about the whole process of convincing somebody to, you know, that this should actually come out. Well, you are right on the money on that one. Um, this kind of set uh, could never actually, to be very honest about this set, you, they would never put this out before. And I don't think they would, they will ever reissue this set again. And that sounds like something (laughs) like you got to go run out and get it because, but really, once you look at it, you realize why, uh, this was a hard fought collection for us to put out. It took about five years from conception to holding it in my hand. Part of that was convincing and George Feltenstein, uh, who runs the uh, the Warner Archive Collection, uh, is the man. You know, I mean, he's he's the guy who who does this. There's a they didn't want to put out black and white. You got that. We did put as many as we could on some of the Golden Collection DVDs and the Platinum Collection Blu-ray sets that we could in the past. Um, and those are all fully beautifully restored. And those of course are on this set. The Porky Pig ones are on this set, uh, that way. In this case, the archive, um, is a, uh, different unit over there at Warner home video. Um, they, uh, they are independent of the, uh, of the regular group that puts out Harry Potter movies and the wonder woman DVDs, uh, they're their own little thing, and their budget is a lot, lot smaller. And they work with what they can work with and do miracles to get out what they can. The cartoons have always been under the domain of the uh, the other division. And thus, for the last five years uh, uh, that George has been doing the archive collection, we couldn't touch the uh, classic, uh, you know, Looney Tunes and MGM cartoons and Popeye. We couldn't touch any of the, the, you know, the, the stuff we love from the golden age. And so, uh, the thinking early on was what can we, what can we take that they're never going to put out? And this was like five years ago. We're thinking, what, what, what will they never put out? Now, five years ago, they weren't putting anything out. They were they stopped doing Tom and Jerry. They stopped doing all this stuff. So, uh, but they still held on to it. So we finally convinced them that, that the thing that they, they, they realized, yeah, we won't put out black and white Porky Pig cartoons. They, you, you got us. We won't put those out. So if you want to pursue something in that direction, go for it. And um, we thought the only way that we we're going to make a splash, we had to. We wanted to uh, – we didn't want to just put out a set of 12 cartoons, you know, or something like that, or 24 or just one year of Porky Pig. We had to be something bigger and better. We ended up amongst our brainstorming sessions. We realized that there were 99 black and white Porkies 
and they were there were two colors that were kind of must-haves if you're going to throw do this sort of set. One is the first cartoon with Porky. I haven't got a hat, which is in two color. And then there's a special one they made in 1939 called Old Glory, which is Porky Pig uh, learning the Pledge of Allegiance. You know that one, don't I you, Mike? I know that one well. Right. Now, Porky. Right. <laughs> so uh, – uh, we had to put those two on, and it's and Porky 101 sounded like a, a history lesson. You know, we loved the idea of it. We wanted, to, we said, okay, we're gonna call it Porky 101. Then we started looking at the cartoons, and uh, we realized there was a group of them that were uh, tech, the word is politically incorrect. There were several <laughs> that had uh, things in them that now we know why they haven't released these ever. You know, why they've never even reissued some of these things. Uh, and, um, so we, we, we had to, uh, meticulously state the case to the standards and practices and the, the business affairs people there and, uh, make it very clear that this was going to be sold, you know, like through Warner archive, it's not going to go to target or it's not going to go to, uh, to any, uh, you know, place where a kid can just pick it up, you know, uh, at, you know, in a random Toys R Us or something like that. This was going to go kind of marketing a little bit toward the adult collector. It was going to go through the archive. I mean, it took, this took a lot to get this sort of thing ironed out. The second thing was that a majority of the cartoons were never restored. And so the, um, uh, how were we going to do that? We can't, we couldn't – it was something that was not in the budget uh, by the archive group. It was a very low budget. They, they, they spend whatever they do have on restoring a lot of features uh, that they put out, and they put out a lot of great stuff, as I'm sure you know. And uh, so they – this was a tricky, tricky situation. Uh, we ended up going back to uh, the fine-grained prints in the vault to transfer them and not go back to the negatives and not do a cleanup like like is, is normally done. This was a big issue with us because, you know, it's not – the Warner does not put out stuff that isn't pristine. Uh, but this time we thought, you know, I think the fans will get it. They'll understand. They'll see what we're doing here, the bigger picture of this. And, of course, the other thing that's very important was that, uh, that this was a test. This was a big, big test. Not, it wasn't a test of will they buy uh, an unrestored cartoon. It was a test of will is there still an audience for DVD uh, of collectors that will will want to buy such a set? And that was a big question because the industry doesn't believe there is. The industry does not uh, subscribe to that notion anymore. It's there's. Everybody's getting downloads and Netflix, and if you want Wonder Woman, you're going to probably wait for Netflix to get it or HBO. Um, you know, buying it is like is is not what it used to be, and the numbers are there to prove that. And we're talking about putting out 101 black and white Porky Pig cartoons. Are we out of our minds? <laughs> so, so basically. Uh, we've put this out as a test, and after, as of this conversation, uh, the figures aren't back yet. So we urge everybody to go out and get this, because uh, because honestly, you will never see these again available from the company directly ever, yeah. <laughs> because there's stuff on here that is never going to put out. But I, uh, the thing is, if everything goes well, we are hoping uh, this is going to green light. Uh, we're going to go back to people, prove that there's this market, and then there's actually going to be money for us to restore uh, classic animation for this market again, You know, from now on. One obvious one to release is one that came out on Laserdisc, which is the complete MGM Tex Avery. That is made. obvious. Yeah. <laughs> <laughs> that is obvious. It's, this is how come the Tex Avery? Well, that actually goes along with what I've been saying about um, restoration. Uh, George is a stickler for only putting out the finest and highest quality of, of the films that he puts out, whether it's a, a B Western or a cartoon set, or if it's an MGM musical, it's gotta be pristine. 
and he's very proud of this. He was very nervous about this Porky set because we weren't going back to the original elements here. But um, uh, so the, that's the reason why the Tex Avery's haven't come out okay. is part of the reason. Part of the reason is, is that they need to be restored, A. And B, as you may or may not know, uh, the original negatives for the pre-1952 MGM cartoons – uh, 98% of them were burnt up in a fire at, at Rochester uh, oh. years ago. The original, original camera negs and the negatives, all that stuff was gone. So they have CRI negatives. They have backup negatives that are, you know, taken from that. But it's, it, the quality isn't exactly, you know, what it should be. And, and some of, some of your uh, listeners would know that, that if you actually have a nitrate print of an MGM cartoon from the 40s, call me. Because <laughs> my friends who do have such things uh, and have loaned them to us to scan because uh, they, they contain different titles. They sometimes contain different jokes. Sometimes they're edited slightly. Um, I mean, it's actually surprising. We've gone back and looked at uh, the original versions. We've looked at paperwork that exists at the Library of Congress that detail what happens on screen in the original versions, comparing them to the, the, the versions that have been on television for years. The versions that have been on television for years, the ones we all know, are uh, reissues. Hmm. And uh, it's, what does it say? It says like West Trex recording or something like that in the, in the title card. If it says that, that was a 1950s reissue. And if you're watching a cartoon from, from 1945 and it has that West Trex, you're, you're, you're not seeing the original version of it. You're seeing the reissue version. There's nothing wrong with it. It's just that we've now learned that there's a little more detail and a little more stuff in the original versions of these cartoons. And unfortunately, many of them may be lost to history. So what else? Uh, you're, you're involved not only with the Warner Archive, but pretty much with anybody doing anything with classic animation. What else is in the works that you're involved with or excited about? Well, it's slim pickings these days when you talk about uh, DVD and Blu-ray. That said, uh, there are a lot of exciting things going on, um, from the sublime to the ridiculous. I'll get the ridiculous out of the way first, which <laughs> is I am working with uh, Kino Lorber and Greg Ford over there uh, on uh, the Patty Freeling cartoons. Those are the uh, the Pink Panther and uh, the Inspector and the Tijuana Toads and characters like that. And, uh, you know, for animation, the sake of animation history, it's fantastic. They've gone back, restored those, and are putting those out on Blu-ray. The Pink Panthers will start coming out in 2018. We're working on those right now. The, um, the, uh, the other note, thing of note on those cartoons, though, is it gives you an idea of what might have possibly have happened to the Warner cartoons if the Warner studio had never closed. That's kind of one of those fun diner games right. that my friends play when you're sitting in a diner and like, what would have happened if they didn't close down in 62, you know, and they just kept making the cartoons, you know, what might they've evolved to. And I really, if you look at the, the Patty Freeling material of the 1960s, they were doing them, the pink Panther and inspector and things like that. Uh, you really get an idea because they, they're really using a lot of the, the same staff, a lot of the same writers, same animators, uh, there's some good cartoons there. There's some actually good Pink Panther cartoons and, and, and the like from that period that I would actually hold up and say, these, these are pretty darn good for what they are. They, they start getting worse in the 1970s and they start really going downhill and people start retiring and, you know, getting really too old. But, um, but it's an interesting thing to observe if you're really a real nut for as i am yeah. <laughs> for the warner cartoons uh you know you can really kind of see what the twilight years might have been like if, if they didn't cut off in 62 i'm kind of in some ways as a warner fan i think it might have been a good thing that they closed then because in some ways they closed i don't want to say at the height of their powers but you know they were beginning to wane but but uh but still pretty high quality stuff was being produced while they were still using the the famous Warner Brothers, you know, rings on the opening title. Uh, on the other hand, <laughs> from the sublime, from the ridiculous to the sublime with cartoons um, is the work that uh, my friend Steve Stanchfield with his company, Thunderbean Animation, 
and my good friend Tommy Jose Staffis with his company Cartoons on Film. They're doing remarkable work. These are two guys who don't have major companies or bankrolls or payrolls behind them. They're basically working out of their, their homes or their little studios uh, to restore classic animation uh, and put it out on the highest possible quality, uh, make it available on DVD and Blu-ray. These guys deserve medals. Uh, in the case of, I'll take Steve first, uh, Steve is a powerhouse. And in recent years, he's uh, put out uh, some of the, the best things that he's put out at the t- off the top of my head and that are just the tip of the iceberg are uh, a private snafu collection that he did. He went back to the uh, Library of Congress, those films turn out to be, of course, public domain. They were produced by the army. They belong to us. So he simply uh, was able to u- borrow, use the original 35 millimeter materials to uh, make a wonderful Blu-ray set on uh, those classic wartime cartoons that were produced by Warner Brothers. Frank Tashlin, Bob Clampett, uh, Chuck Jones, Frizz Freeling, I mean, and, and Mel Blanc, Carl Stalling. I mean, these are things you need if you love Warner cartoons you need that private snafu set uh, the um, the other great set and I'm saying the other I'm acting as if he only put out two things he's probably put out three dozen great sets but the other one that I really like to recommend is his Gulliver's Travels the Fleischer feature uh, he put out the best restoration of that that anyone's ever done you've seen that that film of course is public domain and it's been put out to death by, I'm going to say, hundreds of distributors throughout the years. And uh, Steve went back to uh, the best Technicolor 35, probably nitrate prints he could find, and cobbled together, you know, digitally, uh, the best version of that film that you'll ever see. It's jaw-dropping. The color is spectacular. And there's bonus extras, and it's beautiful. So uh, Thunderbeans... Gulliver's Travels, highly recommended. And that's just two of many, 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 many wonderful collections and sets he's put out. He's right now been working on the Ub Iwerks collection. He put out Willy Whopper, the MGM cartoons of the early 30s. He's working on Flip the Frog right now. And he'll soon be doing the Comic Colors. And he'll soon be doing the Van Buren Rainbow Parades and on and on and on. So everybody should check out Thunderbean Animation online. Um, I work with him, of course. Yeah, as well. <laughs> I also uh, less so, but uh, very much uh, supportive of what Tommy Jose Staffis is doing in New York. He is the silent cartoon expert and guy, young man who really has just decided to own <laughs> the history of silent uh, animation. He'd be great to have on your show, uh, and he um, he's been uh, locating, tracking down, and restoring. Uh, rare uh, silent animation that's really been forgotten. You know, they talk about, you probably know the figures better than I, that, you know, what is it? Is it like 75% of all silent movies? Is, is that are the number? Lost. Something like that Something like are that, lost, yeah. right? Probably, you know, 75% of that, 75% are, are, are silent animation. You know, it really nobody kept the animation films, with some exceptions. And uh, thanks to people like Tommy, uh, very important pieces of that puzzle are are now uh, restored, found, and uh, be, be, be been able to uh, uh, people are just able to enjoy and access them uh, like we haven't had before. So I definitely want to recommend those two. And that's really where things are at these days uh, with uh, the classic libraries. And, uh, you know, we all do what we can, you know, and we all do it in the ways that we can, you know, Tommy's in New York doing what he does and I'm out here doing what I do. And, uh, it's all for the good. Um, there's more appreciation and care, uh, about these classic cartoons today than I've ever seen in my life. Uh, and I've been doing this my entire life. I've been involved with it the whole time. Uh, uh, it's cartoons were at the end of the line. The preserving a feature was more important. I get it. Preserving newsreels, more important. I get it. Preserving Laurel and Hardy, totally understand. Cartoons are always the last. It's the least. People have a perception that that a studio owns them, like Disney. Disney owns them. They're, they're preserving them. 
yeah, well, no, nobody owns Felix the Cat. Well, that's not true. We know who owns Felix the Cat. But the Felix the Cat films are scattered throughout the world. There isn't even a, a real complete filmography. Maybe there is now, but there, there hasn't been for years. Um, shout out to David Gerstein, who probably is the guy who has that filmography and made that. He's a major Felix the Cat expert. And I know that Tommy and uh, David and uh, and Steve Stanchfield at Thunderbean, they're all working together on a massive Felix the Cat project oh, right now cool. to try to restore those. So that's there's stuff going on. Uh, and it's still going to take a while for stuff like that to happen, to actually literally come out. But it's, but people are working on it. Um, and like I say, we're all working on it in our, in our own way. Um, like I, I, one thing I, I unfortunately cannot say, uh, publicly on, on a, on a podcast at this time, there's a lot of other projects I'm working on with the major studios that may or may not happen, but the fact that we're talking about them. You know, uh, that's, that's good news. it's better than that we're not talking about. You know. uh, uh, puppy, oh puppy, uh, speak to me, uh, good old doggy, nice puppy. Oh, oh you, you uh, poor thing. Gosh, I didn't know you cared. <laughs> that's awful. So that was all for animation, folks. But Jerry and I talked about another interest of his that manifested itself in a new release. Back in episode 6, I talked with Mike Schlesinger about the Restored Republic serial Daredevils of the Red Circle. Well, Kino Lorber's follow-up to that release is The Adventures of Captain Marvel, and offering commentary on that one is Jerry Beck. Well... Captain Marvel is considered one of the best serials ever made. I agree with that. I mean, it's up there. I, I have never compiled a list of the greatest serials, but I suppose Flash Gordon has to be there, and I suppose Daredevils and Spy Smasher and all the Whitney English serials from the early 40s have to be there. The people who know me don't know that I'm into movie serials. I'm into B-movies, B-westerns. I'm into movies in general because of serials. Uh, I was a comic book buff as a kid, you know, and Batman came on in the 60s, and and uh, that led me to see the Batman serial, which led me to see the Captain Marvel serial, which led me to see more Republic serials, which led me to even see the Western serials, which got me into the Westerns. And uh, I love superheroes. And, you know, I always tell people that, that, that Roy Rogers and Gene Autry and Hopalong Cassidy and Wild Bill Elliott, back in the old days, Buck Jones, I can go on and on, those were the superheroes of the 1920s, 30s, and 40s. They, that, that, that was, those, those were superhero pictures. You know, they were the good guys, and they, they solved the problems and saved the day. Yeah, so I, I mean, Captain Marvel. It's 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 it, it was until the modern era, until about the last fifteen years or so. Not counting the Christopher Reeve Superman, it was pretty much the best superhero uh, film that Hollywood ever produced, in my opinion. The thing with Captain Marvel is that um, unlike the majority of of Republic serials and serials in general, where these, these each chapter was sort of a an action short, you know, where there'd be chases and there'd be fist fights, you know what I mean, and and there'd be peril, real peril for the for the hero, right? Uh, they had an issue here with Captain Marvel because he was a superhero, so he couldn't really punch somebody, although although he does, but he couldn't really have a sustained fist fight because he'd win. Right, <laughs> you know, in in a second. So they they, they literally avoided doing it. Uh, they they couldn't put him in peril, although they did. Uh, but they couldn't put him in peril much because we knew that he could, you know, he could bullets could bounce off him, you know, and and you know blades can break on his chest. So how much peril could they put him in? Well, they ended up putting his alter ego Billy Batson or his girlfriend or you know, his, his colleagues in most of the peril in this. And they, and most of the action is really just spectacular visuals in some ways, the flying scenes, which 
uh, are so remarkable it makes me wonder why they didn't continue making superhero movies later because they figured it out all in this one big bang of a serial. They figured out everything on how to do this. You know, um, they have these realistic flying scenes with, uh, you know, this, what it's, it's a dummy, you know, a, a mannequin on a, on a guy wire, you know, but it's, it's sort of invisible. You kind of can't see it. The Lidecker brothers who were the, uh, the, uh, the, the geniuses who did the uh, special effects, they did the miniatures in all these Republic films. These guys really knew how to put across uh, these effects. They wouldn't do them in a little studio, you know, with, with, the, with, with studio lighting and this and that. They'd go outside. They'd build, you know, they'd build their miniatures in the open air. They'd film Captain Marvel on this, 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 this flying figure. You know, they'd actually go out to the mountains and string it up and shoot it, you know, as the character is, is, is following a truck, you know, I mean, they would do this amazing, crazy stuff, but it works. Acme Storage Company. Shazam! Porky Pig 101, as it's known for short, is available now through the Warner Brothers shop, which is wbshop.com, and at Amazon and other places. The Adventures of Captain Marvel is likewise available from Kino Lorber and all the usual outlets. I'll have links to Jerry Beck's cartoon research and lots of other things we talked about in the show post at nitrateville.com. We all know how movies are made. You have a director, a writer, some actors, and then a couple of hundred or thousand other people who never get famous. Even though they contribute not only their craft, but sometimes the very ideas that we see up on the screen. Harold and Lillian, A Hollywood Love Story, is a charming film about two of these people and how they shape movies including The Ten Commandments, West Side Story, The Birds, The Graduates, Star Trek The Motion Picture, Spaceballs, and many more. It's also a moving tale about two people who managed to make a success, not without difficulties, of a Hollywood marriage for 60 years. I asked filmmaker Daniel Rame who Harold and Lillian Michelson were and why he wanted to tell their story. Harold Michelson was a storyboard artist uh, who started working in the late 40s, early 50s in Hollywood and um, moved up the ladder, basically, um, working as an art director and then as a production designer. And his wife, Lillian, uh, in the 1960s, started to work as a film researcher. And she eventually bought a library, like a research, a Hollywood studio research library, and became uh, the most sought-after film researcher in Hollywood. And not just for her collection and her resources through her collection, but her own ability to get to get information from any kind of film, like from Scarface to Fiddler on the Roof. So, and they worked together, and I got to know them when I was a student at the American Film Institute, in 1999 through my professor, Robert Boyle, who designed these Hitchcock pictures. I told them I'm making this documentary about Bob Boyle, and they invited me for lunch at the DreamWorks Animation Studios, where Lillian had her studio in 1999, her, where she had her research library. And this was the, the early days of the, of the DreamWorks studio. And they needed a research library, so they invited Lillian to, to bring her library, which was kind of an amazing thing for her to have. And um, as a student, meeting Harold and Lillian and being invited to join them for lunch was um, an exceptional experience because I immediately was embraced by these two very warm, nurturing, kind, loving people who who um, treated me like a, like a friend. And, and it was just sort of the beginning of a relationship. 
they're an adorable couple in the film. I mean, that's the first reason that people want to get to know them. But you also plugged into a mother load of film history by meeting them. That's right. That's right. So, like, the way lo- – this is so by way of example. Like, this is the way lunch would go. We'd have lunch at DreamWorks Animation for half an hour, and then Lillian would have to dart off and do her film research. And Harold would invite me to his office that was next to Lillian's research library. And for five hours, we'd just be hanging out, and I'd be hearing – Everything, war stories, horror stories (laughs) from Harold. And his bookshelves were lined with these storyboards, original storyboards from The Birds, Marnie, Cleopatra, The Graduate, um, uh, the, The Ten Commandments, right? And not only that, but he was so open to sharing about his experiences and his process. And, and, uh, this was all, so I fortunately, interviewed Harold two I had two career spanning interviews that I shot and he in 1999 he passed away in 2007 and in 2013 I approached super camera shy Lillian Michelson right <laughs> and Harold too I mean supremely camera shy which speaks to why are they camera shy I mean why maybe are they so special is because they never sought the limelight they never sought the spotlight they worked so behind the scenes that no one's really even heard of what they do. Well, and there's that great story where Harold was nominated twice for Academy Awards as a production designer. And he's saying, oh, I hope I don't win so I don't have to go up on stage. I don't think, I don't think that's a common sentiment at the Oscars. No, <laughs> and it's true. It's really, it's, that's, that's, their, that's their, you know, it's, that's, that's what makes them, partly what makes them so special. You know, The Graduate is a good example, because talk about something where Harold's work not only wound up on the screen, but is the central image of the film. He had this conception of shooting Dustin Hoffman, I mean, I'm sure it wasn't even Dustin Hoffman yet when he was drawing it, through the crook of Anne Bancroft's leg. And there's that shot in the storyboard, and there's that shot in the movie, and there's that shot on the poster. It became the image of The Graduate. I didn't know that he... It didn't even occur to me until the starting to do deep research. And um, fortunately, the family held on to these storyboards so we could scan them at extreme high resolution and investigate Harold's process. Also, fortunately, there was another uh, a filmmaker in 2003 that also shot a couple interviews with Harold uh, in his late life and gave us permission to use these interviews. So that 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 was a discovery for me to, to, uh, I became a graduate fan, let's say after, <laughs> after knowing her, you know, just a quick kind of like side note about the graduate and Harold's process on that. Harold also did storyboards and production illustrations for Mike Nichols first film. Who's afraid of Virginia Woolf. The cinematographer on that film was Haskell Wexler. And Haskell shared with me a similar story. He had an identical experience that Harold had. Mike Nichols was ready to make his next film, The Graduate. This was his second film. And he approached uh, Harold and Haskell, his team, to reunite to make uh, The Graduate. And Haskell said uh, he gave us – there was no script at the time. He gave us the book to read. And Haskell, independent of Harold, told me the exact same story. I read the book. I thought it was a piece of shit. And I told (laughs) Mike Nichols, I'm not going to make this film. I'm not going to shoot. I'm not going to be your cameraman on this film. Instead, he hired Robert Surtees, who has more of a classic Hollywood, you know, cinematographer, a more different approach to cinema and storytelling, visual storytelling. And I feel that if Haskell had indeed took the job, he wouldn't have used Harold's storyboards. He would have shot it in a more verite style. That's right. That's right. And that's like, and now I think about that and I think about the entire history of cinema, <laughs> you know, and how do these things come together? And as, as Rick Carter uh, explains in the film, production designer Rick Carter, um, that, that Harold made that transition from golden age and classic Hollywood into new Hollywood and helped these directors sort of make that transition and brought to the graduate that aesthetic of, of, of storytelling, that aesthetic of classic Hollywood in terms of compositions and ideas and framing 
that Bob Surtees fell in love with and would go to the art department and say, I love these boards. And Harold's storyboards did not intimidate Robert Surtees because even though his boards, despite the fact that his storyboards, you know, convey these fantastic ideas like the, that leg shot, they also convey exactly what camera lens we're using to get that shot, where the camera is on the set, the height of the camera, and the tilt of the camera. Well, and honestly, that's something that floored me. The idea that you could draw which camera lens you're going to use into a storyboard. I mean, I've worked in advertising, and I've seen a lot of storyboards, and nobody ever did that. That's right. That's right. Yeah, this is a system that was um, that Harold learned when he became a, an art, you know, worked in the art department in, in the late 40s in Columbia, because they needed to draw these storyboards even before the director was hired. That was the factory system, studio system, where the scripts would be written. People like Harold would pre-visualize them based on uh, art department um, uh, uh, floor plans of the sets. And then Harold's storyboards would tell the art director exactly how much of a set he needed to build. And, and so he develops this technique. But in 1967, he's doing storyboards for The Graduate. In 1963, he's doing storyboards for The Birds and 1964 for Marnie. And that, I think, was like a, a, a complete transformation for Harold in terms of like working with a, a director who had a, an extraordinary command of, of the cinema language. And also had really started like Harold had in drawing for movies before he started directing movies. That's right. That's right. Absolutely. Well, we could go on and on about the filmmaking part of this story. But the other part that's so fascinating is that they're a couple. They were married for 60-some years. So that's extraordinary. I mean, we're at a particularly low moment for Hollywood morals here. So, you know, they're, they're like a cheering story of nice people in Hollywood. But also, there, there's a real story of sort of pre-feminism female empowerment there, which is Lillian clawed her way to having a career that mattered to her. They had an autistic child at a time when that was very poorly understood, and she fought for him. Yeah. All of that, you know, she's a real hero and tiger in this movie. And, yeah, and she didn't, and she also had her fair share of sexual harassment. Uh, one of those events is, is indicated in a deleted scene um, in the in the DVD in the Blu-ray. She is a type, you know. She's a she's a you know her her as I was learning, you know, when I started making this documentary, I didn't know her backstory per se, nor was she really willing to share it with me. But as I got to um, interview other people and, and seeing what kind of impact Harold Lillian made on their careers. I mean, from Danny DeVito to Mel Brooks spoke so warmly and, and, and eloquently and, 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 uh, generously about the, the contributions of Harold Lillian in their career. But it was not just that it was like, there was an aspect of their friendship and who they were as human beings. I started to sort of align my own feelings with Lillian's background, which was sort of came out of a world of parental abandonment. And how does one overcome the challenges that life presents to us from a very early age and have, and still stay human and stay, um, and have a family and get on with life and have, these were questions while I was making the film, I was asking myself about my own life. How do we just get on? How did they get on? So I started to look to Harold and Lillian and sort of shape and structure the film around that question. And she really is the classic thing of the person who lacked a family growing up who creates families later on. I mean, she had a literal family with Harold, obviously, but she also kind of gathered people around her. You know, there's that great story about when she was on the Zoetrope Studios lot and Tom Waits would, you know, would come into the library and, and she kind of didn't know who he was, but he would just sit there telling stories, you know, in that inimitable voice. I mean, you know, oh, yeah. only oh, in yeah. Hollywood. She had a rocking chair, apparently, right, in her, like, uh, reception <laughs> area. This little bungalow at Zoetrope Hollywood Studios. And people would come for tea and cookies. She'd always have laid out tea and cookies. 
and Tom Waits, his his uh, recording studio, he had a piano and a, where he'd write all his music for the one for, one from the heart. And he would just waltz in, just hang out. Lillian's like she's a mother, like a den mother, and she always jokes about half the people there were like stoned out of their mind and loved her tea and cookies. <laughs> and, and More cookies? Talk. Yeah, right. No, but look, she's she's a, she's really a special person, and I didn't realize. So I'd known her for like twenty years, and I'm making this film. I'm even interviewing her over the course of a year and a half, and as we're going deeper and deeper into the conversations, they weren't necessarily interviews; they were conversations about her life, getting on, marriage, politics, sometimes you know, life experiences, and little did I know, I'm capturing these little life lessons with Lillian too. And, and, and what really sort of, uh, caught me off guard is that this, this turned out to be a documentary where people would, and, and when, when Lillian would come to screenings, they would line up after the screenings to talk with her about their life, (laughs) you know? And she was, at first she was sort of like taken aback. She's like, why are people telling me all these personal things about their life and that speaks to maybe why tom white that's tom whites was doing that i mean that's who she is she's a very very caring nurturing loving and bright and and i would leave all those lunches at dreamworks super energized yeah about about you know about things so i wanted to put that into the film that feeling Harold and Lillian, A Hollywood Love Story, is available to rent on Amazon, and it's on Blu-ray and DVD from Kino Lorber. The Kino Lorber edition comes with a number of extras giving additional insight into their work and lives in Hollywood. Thanks to my guests, Jerry Beck and Daniel Rame, and to Matt Berry of Kino Lorber and J.B. Kaufman. Music is by Kevin McLeod. There will be lots of links to things that we talked about in the show post at nitrateville.com. Be sure not to miss a single episode. Subscribe to Nitrateville Radio at iTunes, SoundCloud, or Stitcher, and join us to chat about old movies at nitrateville.com. Thanks.